letter in chapter 2. You can turn there if you have a Bible. It's near the end of your Bible. If you have an electronic device, it's wherever. Push the button. Last week, we looked at an amazing reason John wrote this letter. He actually tells us what one of his purposes, and I know you know the three purposes by now if you've been with us. But the second purpose is that you do not sin. He says there, my dear children, I write this to you so that you do not sin. You know, John's goal, and really this is the New Testament goal, as far as sin is concerned, and as far as the Christian is concerned, we're talking to the Christian here, <clears throat> is not to muzzle you. You know what a muzzle is? You know, you put it on a dog when he wants to bite you. A lot of us look at sin that way, that we just, we're something we want to do, and we put a muzzle on it. But you know, you put a, you have a dog that likes to bite people, and you put a muzzle on that dog, guess what happens to that dog? He still wants to bite people. Still does. And we look at sin that way. We just, we give ourselves some safeguards or whatever to muzzle us. But just like that dog still is looking at that leg, wishing he could bite it, we look at that sin wishing that we could still participate. As soon as the muzzle comes off, what are we going to do? What the Bible does, what the New Testament does, what John is doing here, he's, he's, he's giving you the motivation to change your heart. See, that's what we really need. We want to be able to look at sin and not desire it. Just that we don't want it anymore. And there are, you know, some of you, there are some sins in your life, in, the, in your past, that you used to find a, an extreme temptation. And now you look at it and it, there's no temptation anymore. You don't even want it anymore. And there's some things you're still struggling with, I know. And so John gives us some biblical mo- motivation of why we don't sin, or at least why we should not sin. And I, I left last week saying something like this, Go... And do not sin. I can't remember my, I didn't listen to the, my ending, but I said something like that. So I want to ask you, was that, how did that go for you last week? Did you hear that and just say, well, that's a preacher thing, and you just went on your life and went on your merry way? Or did you actually try and put that into practice, application, and say, all right, I am not going to sin this week. I'm going to... Do, you know, look at the scripture and attempt not to sin. And did you find it difficult? Did you find it hard? I suspect if you depended on your own strength, if you put a muzzle on it, you had a hard time. And I also suspect that if you depended on God as you should have, you had a hard time too. But the difference is this. If you depended on God during those times of temptation... You were maturing in Christ. Your heart was changing. Even though you didn't know it, your heart was actually changing. And that's what, that's what God calls us to. It's a change of heart. He wants you to look at sin and struggle through it and change your heart and not just put a muzzle on it. The question has arisen and has been asked of me, not just this, this time, but in times past, well, why doesn't God just take away that desire to sin when I become a Christian, I just wish God would take it away. 
And I think there's three reasons God, that God doesn't just take away our sin. First, away, first of all, let me back up and say, sin, Christians are not sinless, but Christians are called to sin less. All right, that's, we aren't sinless, and we don't claim sinlessness. But we, we do say, yes, we are called to sin less. We, that's part of our motivation, our goal, is to sin less. So three reasons God just doesn't take it away. And these just three reasons that, that I, I think are biblical and that I've come up with. There could be 15. But first of all, the struggle with sin matures us. God's goal for you is not to be sinless. God's goal for you is to be Christ-like. God wants you to grow in His grace, in His character. And He wants you to grow not so much what you don't do. A lot of times we look at sin as things that we don't do. But what you do do. How, what you do in the, in, in, as you grow and become more like Christ. The way you respond to things. So one reason God doesn't take away that desire to sin is He wants you to go through the struggle so that you will grow up. So that you will mature. Number two, the struggle causes us to, to, to depend on God's grace and not our own strength. Bill Nyland mentioned this in his opening monologue Wednesday night when he, he referred to the scripture in Titus. It says, For the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. God's grace teaches us to say no. And we, do not, we really don't understand that. In view of God's mercy, in another place it says, as we view God's mercy, change takes place. And so as we go through the struggle and we depend on God's grace, we learn how to say no to ungodliness. And third, if God simply took it away, it wouldn't be long before we would all begin to believe that it's because of our own power and our own strength that we've conquered this. That's just pride. That would be another sin. We'd be involved in this sin of pride. So these, I think there's three reasons. God wants you to go through the struggle so that you will grow up. And He wants you to go through the struggle so you'll depend on Him and His grace and not trust in yourself. If we view our sins correctly, as Christians, as we view, as, if we view our sins correct, correctly, there should swell up in us a continual outpouring of thankfulness, Toward a gracious God who loves us. In view of God's mercy, I look at my sin and I pour out to God a, a thankfulness that He takes care of that, that He has taken care of and He continues to take care of that. And yet if we have an incorrect view of sins, and many of us struggle with this, it, it drives us to despair. It drives us to despondency. We have a feeling of unworthiness. And the only way, I, the way the, this is what came to my mind, we become, we become like slugs in the darkness. And I, I, I'm, if that grosses you out, close your eyes for a minute. It's not a real bad picture. There's some worse pictures than that of slugs. But when I'm working with Christians, a lot of times this is my view, not this person who is just like, oh God, look what you've done for me. Thank you. But they go through life as just like slugs in the darkness. Unworthy. I'm an unworthy creature. I'm good for little in life, but just sliding through life in darkness. Light walkers, on the other hand, 
realize, realize, yes, I'm unworthy in and of myself, but I'm not worthless. And there's a difference. Light walkers rejoice in Christ, who covers them in His worthiness and makes them worthy. A Christian stands worthy before God, not because of what they've done, but because of what Christ has done. And so they stand, yes, I try to picture it this way with this person, yes, there's sin in Him, in us. It's our nature, it's our struggle, it's our weakness. But we turn to, and as Christians, thankful to God for the way He just takes away our sins. Instead of crawling through life as slugs in the darkness. And what John has written here is motivation for us not to sin. And what he will write is motivation for us not to sin. And as he says that, I write this so that you do not sin, he then quickly turns to the gospel, the good news. And he focuses back on the reality of Christ and our ability, and, and not our ability to overcome sin. He doesn't focus on you and say, now this is what you do in order not to sin. And focuses on you, he focuses on Christ. So, are you ready for some good news? Or have you had so much good news you just can't stand it? <laughs> the first chapter of John is just so full of good news. It's like, man, can there be more? I'm telling you there's more. Let's read it together. My dear children, he says in verse two, 1 of chapter 2, I write this so that you will not sin. We covered that last week. Now, we're going to cover this, this part this week. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I'm not one who uses alliteration very much, but this time it just came. We're going to look at the place of our friend. We're going to look at the person of our friend. And get ready for the big word, the propitiation of our friend. And by the end of this, you're going to know what that means. The place of our friend. He says here, but if anybody does sin. We entitled last week's lesson, Why Christians Don't Sin. And your response was, why Christians do sin. And I said, okay, yes, I know we're going to get to that next week. So that's where we are today. We have the power through God's Spirit. We have the motivation based in gratefulness and the new life in Christ that leads us not to sin. It changes our heart so that we do not sin. And yet we live in a fallen world. We're practical and this is, we, we're don't try and deny the obvious. We live in a fallen world. We live in fallen bodies. Our nature is sin. And so we do sin. And as we look at this, this clause in this first part, if anybody does sin, it's in a tense stating that although sin is no longer your goal, it's no longer your practice, it will happen. We don't begin each day thinking, this is what I want to do as far as sin is concerned. This is my goal in life. No. But we know it will happen. And at this point, we come to a crossroads in our lives. At this point, we look at it and, and we can either go down that road of despair, the despair that I have hurt my Savior, the one I committed my life to, I've denied, the Lord I swore allegiance to, my God, 
whom I failed once again. And the temptation is to focus on my failure and not his faithfulness. Do you remember how you felt when you came out of baptism? When you came out of that water? It happened a long time ago for me, and I remember it. I felt clean. I felt pure. You remember that? And I was dedicated. I wasn't going to do anything anymore. I wasn't going to commit any other sin. Surely I'm not the only one that thought that. And I don't even know how long it was. Was it a few hours? Or a few days? Or a day? I don't know. That's hardly any time at all. And I sinned. And there's this, man, the very thing I committed my life not to do, I've done. And there's a temptation to go down this road of despair. And so at this point, where John has said, I, I've written this so that you do not sin, he then says, but when you do, if you do, if anyone does, and he actually says, we have one who speaks to the Father on our behalf. We, John, old John, 80-something years old. Some people think he was in his early 90s. You would think he had conquered sin by this time, that he no longer needed an advocate. He says, we have one who speaks to us. I still need Jesus, is what John is saying here. We have one who speaks on our behalf. <clears throat> this is from the New International, New International Version yeah, of, the, of the Bible. And some of you have other translations. And I'm sorry to say, but we're, we're dealing with translation. Some, some of you might be bilingual and you understand this better than anyone else. Or you've studied another language. When you're going from one language to another, there's some difficulty. And this was not written in English. John wasn't English. He wrote it in Greek. And so we have trouble with our translation sometimes. And there's several places that we're going to have to talk about that. The NIV is called a dynamic equivalent. It tries to take a word from the original language, from the Greek language, and then uses a word or word sometimes to try and explain it to you just so you can understand what it means. It, that's why it's called a dynamic equivalent. It's the equivalent in a dynamic way is what they're attempting to do. But no matter what you think of that, you may think that's the worst thing in the world to have a dynamic equivalent. I want a literal translation. Okay, literal translations are hard to understand too. Let me give you the examples. This word has been translated advocate, comforter, patron, a friend and a helper, Pleads, counselor, speaks on our behalf. Those are just some ways they're trying to get you to understand what that particular word means. And if you look at those, that can be confusing too. Some just give it up and say, well, let's just transliter transliterate the word. And they say, parakletos. We have a parakletos. They just, oh, a learning new word is what they're basically saying. But what it means is, Literally means to call alongside of. To call someone alongside of. Or one who is called alongside. My preference is advocate. If I were translating it, I guess I would say advocate. If I word for word. It's a legal term. It's a lawyer. But you don't have a good sense unless you are a lawyer. You don't have a really good sense of that word, do you? When do you go to a lawyer? When you're in trouble. Right? And it's not a nice thing. And so we have this, this idea, but the idea there is a, a legal term. 
The word counselor is used from the British term. Do you know when you go to England or Fiji or British colonies, or used to be British colonies, you, you don't hire a lawyer, you hire a counselor. It's not someone who sits across the desk and gives you counsel and says, okay, this is what you need to do. It's a, one who is a, a legal counselor. It's one who stands in your defense. And it's continuous. The, the term here is a continuous sense. It's every minute of our lives. We have an advocate. We have a lawyer. We have one who stands in our defense, who speaks on our, our behalf all the time. Good news. And so it asks, I ask the question, well, who's he defending us? If he's a lawyer, who's he de- defending us against? And you think God. It says we have one who's, who uh, speaks to the Father in our defense. The word with there means face to face. I think it's important. We have one who is face to face with God as our advocate. And yet, it's not God who's accusing us. It's not as if God is accusing us and Jesus is doing his best to defend us. To say, well, no, God, you didn't know what, what, really what's happened. Please listen to this. What really happens is here. You know who the accuser is? Satan. Good. Turn over to a few pages to Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 and 11. And it says there, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation, the power, and the, kingdom of, uh, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ for the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice. And he goes on. But he says day and night Satan is sitting there accusing, accusing, accusing us. It's not God who's accusing us. It's Satan who's accusing us. And Jesus is speaking face to face with the judge of all mankind. And he's not trying to persuade the judge. It's Satan here who is accusing and claiming uh, that Christians are, are, should be punished. He's claiming their souls. But look what they've done. Look at that attitude. Look at that action. Look at what, what they're doing, God. And the advocate, Jesus has one statement, washed clean by my blood. That's it. The verdict is innocent. And Satan, it must bother Satan, but they did, look what they did, look what he's doing. Washed clean by my blood. He's not arguing with Satan. He's not trying to argue with it. He's not even looking at Satan. He's face to face with God. That's it. Satan is doing his best to condemn. And face to face with God, our advocate. It's almost as if they're not even concerned with the evidence because there's no evidence anymore. You're washed clean by the blood of Jesus. So then we go to our, the person. Of our friend, his character. He's talking about his character here. He says here, But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. This is based on who he is. The letter begins with Jesus, it begins with his message. The focus is on Jesus. It's a God focused and a Jesus focused uh, message. 
He says, that which was from the beginning, and I believe that's talking primarily of his incarnation when he became a human. And he says, let's go back to the very beginning of Jesus, which we have seen, which we've heard, which we've touched. This is the person, a real live person that I've touched. And the gospel message is that God became a man in order to show us God, to bring us back to God. We have a man, like us in every way, yet without sin. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says. And any time that you see that word Jesus, and in the Hebrews he uses the word Jesus, just like he's using it here, it's talking about the humanity of Jesus, of, of, the, of God. Jesus is his human part. It's, he's a man. So anytime you hear the word Jesus, it's talking about real flesh and blood. Jesus. There's a man in heaven named Jesus who's our advocate. He understands your weakness in every way. And yet he was sinless. Jesus Christ. Christ is not a last name. It's a title. It means the anointed one. And it's something we don't relate to. We as Americans don't relate to anointing. The reason I mention this here, because later on he's going to say, you have an anointing. We'll get to that later. All right? Next year. <laughs> but we do have an anointing. The anointing in you know, a lot of cultures, in the Fijian culture, they have anointings. If you're visiting for the first time, I'm wearing a Fijian shirt. I lived there for many years. And during a wedding or if a chief is being installed, they anoint them with coconut oil. And literally, I mean, they put it all over and they're, they're shining. They're shining in coconut oil. And the fragrance of their passage is sweet. If you've ever smelled coconut oil, you smell the sweet savor as they come near you. And they're shining. Um, the, the Jews had an anointing. They would anoint priests. They would anoint kings. In Psalms 133, he says this. He's talking about this anointing, which again, we really won't, can't relate to. It is like precious oil poured on the head. We go, yuck, but it's good, all right? Running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. Oh, how wonderful. In their culture, it was. It was the anointing said, He is the high priest. He is special. And that's what Jesus is. Special priest and king. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that's impossible. You can't be priest and king. The priest came from a tribe called Levi. The kings came from a tribe named Judah. You couldn't be from both tribes. You came from one tribe or the other. And so how could you be a priest and a king? Zechariah tells us how. Zechariah, in the Old Testament, let me just read it if I can find it here. Zechariah, I marked it. Oh, I marked it with this. Here we go. Let me read to you Zechariah chapter 6, uh, verse 12 and 13. Uh, it's a prophecy about this. And he says, tell him that this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch. He's talking about Jesus in prophecy. He will branch out from this place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord. He will be clothed with majesty and he will sit and rule on his throne. King. And he will be a priest on his throne. Every Jew would say that's impossible. How, how is that possible? And there will be harmony between the two. 
You will be priest and king. We can go to the book of Hebrews, and the book of Hebrews kind of explains that, or doesn't kind of, it explains how you can be priest and king. So here we have the anointed one, Jesus, who is both priest and king. That means he can lead us into battle against the forces of Satan as king. He can direct his government, as he says in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. The government will be on his sh- uh, shoulders. And he can also offer the necessary sacrifices, high priests, so the sins can be taken care of. He is our high priest. He is our high royalty. And he's also our friend. All through this, I've been saying friend. You know why? John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verses 14 and 15. Let me read that quickly. He says here, uh, Jesus is speaking and he says, um, You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everyone, everything that I learned from my Father I have made known to you. This is our friend in heaven advocating for, for us. It's our friend who is the anointed one. And he's righteous. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That can only be accomplished by someone who is truly and completely righteous. Most of our translations say something like this, the righteous one. Every translation tries to translate this because it's awkward in English. Literally, it says this, Jesus Christ righteous. That's what it says. Jesus Christ righteous. It's a title and a description. He is the Christ who is righteous, different from everyone else. Everyone has degrees of righteousness. And our righteousness is like dirty rags. But he says, Jesus is completely righteous. No one can compare in his rightness. His holiness in the fact that every thought, every action that Jesus had was the same as God. Every thought, every action, everything Jesus did was totally righteous. Just like God would do it because he was God. John in his first letter, in his gospel said, we have seen his glory. We've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who is at the Father's side. He's full of grace and truth. And he went on to explain that this was God in the flesh. And it's precisely for that reason that he can say, you're righteous. He declares us righteous based on his righteousness. He declares us innocent based on his innocence. But it's something even deeper than him just saying you're innocent, you're righteous, is based in this concept of propitiation, the, the propitiation of our friend. His place, he's the advocate. His person is righteous. And now he is the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. <clears throat> I told you at the beginning that we have to do a little bit of explanation there's some difficult words here. There's difficult com, uh, concepts. Some of you are sitting there saying, I wish you would just avoid all that. Take it up with John. He wrote it. I didn't. <laughs> it's his words. One commentator said this. He said, Even though you may find this tedious, it is nevertheless of extreme importance. What, what I'm sharing here, I'm not trying to get into big words, all right? But it's of extreme importance. If you don't understand this, you don't understand the gospel. 
If you don't understand this big word, you're going to have. You might understand it, but not even know what the word is. But you will after today. Not only of extreme importance, but this is extreme good news. This is great news, folks. So I'm going to make it as simple as possible and as painless as possible. And if you just need more, talk to the guys upstairs. I did a whole sermon on it last December. Do you, did any of you remember that? Any of you remember back in December? The four points of the cross, one was propitiation. All right. So I'm not going to take a whole sermon. I'm just going to touch on it. All right. You want more? Talk to those guys. Different words are used to try and figure this out. Atonement, propitiation, offering, sacrifice, the way our sins are taken away, payment for our sins, reconciliation for our sins, expiation, atoning sacrifice for our sins. They're trying to get you to understand what this, what, what this word means. One translation just uses the Greek again. Halosmos. All right. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means atonement, propitiation, offering. You know, what does this mean? You cannot understand this word if you don't understand the wrath of God. You have to understand the wrath of God. It's futile, it's spiritually dangerous to dismiss the wrath of God. Some people try to say, well, God doesn't have wrath. God isn't angry anymore. In our human thinking, it's the opposite of love. Wrath of God is the opposite of love. And so we, we know that God is love, so we try and explain away His wrath. But the word anger is appropriate. God is wrathful towards sin. God is angry towards sin. Sin must be punished. Now, don't equate your anger with God's anger. God's anger is right. More often than not, your anger is wrong. All right? Human anger is wrong. Yeah, someone just experienced some of that lately, didn't you? It's wrong. God's feelings are not hurt over sin. Our feelings get hurt. We get angry when our feelings are hurt. We get angry when our expectations are not met. We have certain expectations. This is what I expected, and I didn't get that. And I get mad. I get angry at that. That's not God. God's anger, God's wrath is due to what warped and twisted and destroyed a right relationship that He had with mankind. God's anger and wrath is because something came into creation. And twisted, in fact, the word wickedness actually means twisted, twisted things around. And God, because He is loved, desires to bring mankind back into a right relationship with Him. And so He says, wrong things have to be made right. I must deal with sin. It must be dealt with properly. And our problem is we don't understand how horrible sin is. We really don't. We don't understand the horribleness of sin. We can to a degree, but not like we should. All sin separates. All sin separates us from God. It's sin that warps us. It's sin that twists us, twists the image of God that He placed within us into something that is akin to the demonic. We became cousins to the demonic when we entered sin. All the misdemeanor sins are actually felony sins. And the fact that everyone does it, we feel comfortable that everyone does it, just means we all stand under condemnation. Read the book of Romans, first chapter, second chapter. We're all under condemnation. Yeah, we all have committed those sins. Inch by inch, mankind sells itself deeper and deeper into depravity and perversion. 
It begins right here in our mind. We begin to think it and it leads to our actions. We do it. And it, 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 I think it becomes most evident to us when something so horrible happens that we say something has to be done. Have you ever gotten to that point? Maybe not in your personal, maybe in your personal life, yeah, but, but you look at the world and say something must be done. Happened this week to me. <coughs> Planned Parenthood selling body parts of babies. That's worse than Hitler. You know what's worse than that? People explaining it away. And yet I expect the world to do that. I expect the world to go further and further and further into depravity. I'm just asking you, don't go along for the ride. When an organization is lifted up as right, when they kill children and sell their body parts, I said, something must be done. I picked up my phone. I called my senator. I called my representative. This is what I said, basically. I said, I can't do I don't know what to do. If I could do something, if I could file a lawsuit, just tell me to do it. If I can raise some money to help, I will do it. Tell me what to do. But you, according to this government, you represent me. And I'm going to tell you what I think. And I said these words. Something must be done. Something must be done. Called Jeff Session. Didn't talk to him personally. Talked to one of his helpers. <laughs> Mo Brooks is my representative. Something must be done. And if we just wash that off and say, oh, no, no, that's just... Man. We, we need to glorify Hitler and say, Hitler, you only killed six million. We've killed 50 plus and sold their body parts. And this is my point. If, I, I've got, if I've gotten off on the political thing and you're mad at me, or come on back, all right? Take a deep breath and listen to this. When it comes to my selfishness, my impatience, my complaining, I must see that as equally horrid. It kills. It destroys. Not as quickly, but it kills and destroys. We make excuses for those little sins. And they're horrid. We recognize the need to do something about the big sins. About the worst sins. God knows all sins have to be taken care of. All sins destroyed. And yet we sit here, we, have, we, we can't pay the penalty. There's nothing we can do. Mankind can do nothing. You kill someone, what can be done? The life cannot be re restored. You kill somebody and the person, the, the family members and the friends that are still alive, they're dealing with anguish and anger and that leads maybe them to sin. And we can do nothing about it. We can punish sin, but we can't fix it. The person's still dead. The person's, people are still hurt. They're still in anguish. We can't fix any of that stuff. So we need a perfect man. We need a righteous man. We need someone who can fix everything. Someone who can right all wrongs. 
And that's why Jesus is the righteous one. And so we go into this word propitiation, which means appeasement. In every culture, the gods are appeased. Every culture. You go to, well, you go to many, many cultures. I have a picture of somewhere and somewhere. Um, south, um, um, I think it's Assyria, I think. On pottery, they're killing an animal in order to appease the gods. You go down to Haiti, you have voodoo. They have what they call bev. They have five copper bowls with five different substances in it. And what the person has to do is he's got to take stuff in his hands and he draws uh, designs. And he has to memorize hundreds and hundreds of designs. And the whole purpose of these designs is to appease the gods so they can come into their worship ceremony and do what they're asking them to do, whether it's good or bad in their opinion. It's an appeasement, trying to propitiate the gods. If I draw this this symbol a certain way and a certain say the certain things, God will come. If I offer sacrifice, God will say, okay, now everything's fine. Jehovah God doesn't do that. The true God can't be appeased by anything we do. You may view God's wrath as judicial wrath as a, or active anger. It doesn't matter. You can view God's wrath as he's a judge and he's sitting there impassively passing judgment. Fine. Or you can view God as a God who is angry with sin and he's upset emotionally and he says it, something must be done. It doesn't matter which way you look at it. We cannot appease God. God said sin must be punished. And so he did something. Jesus, the appeasement, the propitiation for our sins. God said sin must be punishment. Payment must be made. All that is broken must be fixed. Everything needs to be, to be put back into place the way it was meant to be. And since you can't do it, I will. I'll do it. I will pay the price, God says. I will bear the punishment. I will die so that you won't have to. I will be the propitiation. I will appease myself. Isn't this amazing? God becomes the sacrificer and the sacrificed. God becomes the just and the justifier. Because you can't do it. And I can't either. God says, I will right all wrongs. I will be the propitiation for your sins and for the sins of the whole world. Revelation 5. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides who was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in the loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open up the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open up the scroll or even look inside. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the, the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. 
He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God, for, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice they, they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every living creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Here's the good news. God is light. God has revealed himself. And he's more awesome than we can imagine. We've, we've had a glimpse into him through God's word. God who restores relationships with mankind, who is restoring relationships with mankind that he had from the beginning, through the sacrificial blood of Jesus, this propitious sacrifice, he cleansed and continues to cleanse you of every sin. He stands forever before the face of God, speaking on our behalf, and when the accuser cries guilty, he replies, innocent. And if that's not good news, I don't know what is. I'm talking to Christians. If you're outside of Christ, I'm just saying that's what, that's what we're offering. We're not saying we're better than you. We're saying we're the same as you. You need Jesus as much as we needed him. And if that doesn't motivate us to live for him and desire to grow, to be like him, I don't know how to help you. I really don't. My prayer is that what God, what we know in our mind is true because the word speaks it becomes real in our hearts. And we actually start putting it into practice. Let God's good news 